Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Remember I was teething, little gums bleeding, Friday evening it was all about eating, when I became a teen it was all about beefing, now I'm ready for the world. Hey there, welcome to episode 167 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Kimberly Dark, a sociology professor, writer, and performer who brings body liberation to life in her work. We talked about the connections between our relationship with food and our relationship with sex, the harms of quote-unquote medically supervised diets, how to look at diet culture through a critical lens, how food can help connect us with our inner wisdom, and so much more. It's a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Natasha, who writes, I've been in recovery from an eating disorder for about a year and have been interested in becoming an intuitive eater for a while now. However, whenever I try to transition to intuitive eating, I would either become extremely uncomfortable with perceived weight gain in the first few weeks and resort back to restricting, or I would allow disordered eating habits to creep in. I'm giving intuitive eating another try, and I really want to succeed this time. My problem is, how do you disregard or unlearn food rules that I used to live by? I want to be able to eat whatever I want and not add up calories in my head because I want to be free from disordered eating. But calorie counting became so second nature to me that I know the caloric content of most foods and can't help but think of them when eating that food. When I eat something that I used to consider quote-unquote bad or off-limits, how can I keep from counting the calories if the caloric number of most food products is so second nature to me? So thanks, Natasha, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, this is a really common issue, I think, with people who've had eating disorders for a long time. And so I'm sending a lot of compassion your way because I know it's a really challenging process to get rid of those lingering diet culture beliefs and behaviors. So the first thing I just want to say as sort of a global overview to this question, and really for anyone who's recovering from disordered eating behaviors and habits, I want to say that eating disorder rules are things that you internalize from diet culture, and they're not a part of you. So I know that's weird to think about your thoughts as not being yours or a part of you or from you, but they're really not. They're internalized forms of oppression. We're going to talk about that in a minute a little bit more, but there's something from outside of you that you've taken in and you can choose to take them or leave them. And I strongly suggest leaving them because that is the the real way to healing your relationship with food is kicking those internalized diet culture beliefs and behaviors out of your life and your head. So that is something to keep in mind as you start working on your relationship with the disordered thoughts. And then in terms of the issues that you've had with intuitive eating, where you say you become extremely uncomfortable with perceived weight gain in the first few weeks and resort back to restricting, I think that's really common. And I think you also have to constantly remind yourself here to take the long view. I'm always saying take the long view, right? Because, you know, we have to recognize that no matter what happens in the short term, what you really want is to live in line with your values. You know, what you want is to get back to that peaceful relationship with food and your body that is your birthright. 
and to leave diet culture and disordered eating behind for good. You don't want to be stuck in that middle ground of being slightly disordered about food or pretty disordered about food for your whole life. And the only way to avoid that is really to push through this discomfort and push through the short-term fears of weight gain, the fears of your body changing in the short term, because that's how you get to the long-term goal of having peace with food and your body. And again, you know, we wouldn't think that there was anything wrong with weight gain or even necessarily perceive weight gain in ourselves at all because we wouldn't be so hyper-focused on our bodies if it weren't for diet culture. And diet culture is a system of oppression. It's based on racist and sexist ideas from the 1800s. And we can't allow those ideas to govern our behavior anymore. If you don't live in line with racist and sexist values in your life, and I'm pretty sure that if you're listening to this podcast, you don't, you believe in equality for people of all genders and all ethnicities and all bodies and sexual orientations and everything, right? You probably believe in equality and liberation for all people. But this way of internalizing diet culture beliefs by doing disordered things with food and having a disordered relationship with your body, that is a form of oppression that you've internalized that is based on these racist and sexist ideas that are so retrograde and just need to go. And they're still causing havoc in our society in all kinds of ways, you know, in the political system now, as we can see with the rise of far-right extremism around the world. So these ideas, not it's not that like racism and sexism and all the rest has been obliterated from our society. Far from it. There's still these shades of it that are very much present and wreaking havoc on people's lives in this day and age. But diet culture is another way that those retrograde beliefs are holding on in, in modern day society. And it's really not as understood or as obvious as the, the other ways that those oppressive beliefs are holding on. You know, we don't think of even the most progressive people don't necessarily think of dieting and trying to change your body, trying to lose weight or trying to quote unquote eat clean as a form of oppression that is coming from the same roots as racism and sexism, but it very much is. And so you don't want to let those oppressive thoughts govern your behaviors or your actions anymore. And the calorie counting is actually the same thing, by the way. It's a form of internalized oppression. It stems from diet culture, and it takes us out of the moment and out of our bodies and really away from the pleasure of eating and the feelings of satisfaction that we get from food. And so in that sense, it takes us away from the intuitive relationship with food that we were all born with and that we all deserve to have. You know, this is a human right, a fundamental human right is to be able to relate to food and our bodies in a peaceful way. And calorie counting really distances us from that birthright and from that reality by taking us into our heads where diet culture's lies have really taken root and where that internalized oppression really lives. So I know it's hard to stop counting calories when you've deeply internalized that form of oppression from diet culture and it's become so ingrained in you over the years that it's become a habit. But here is a step that you can take to start overcoming it. So before even trying to change it, just focus on trying to notice it. So every time a calorie count pops into your head and then each time you notice it, mentally label it and say something to yourself like, this is diet culture oppression. Or you could say eating disorder behavior or EDB as my fellow anti-diet dietitian Kylie Mitchell talked about in episode 98. You know, you can say whatever little label or term resonates for you, but just use it to label those mental calorie counts whenever you spot them so that you can start reminding yourself, A, oh, I see this popping up, this is happening, and B, this is an unwanted diet culture intrusion that's coming into my mind and I don't want it. 
And so you may find yourself repeating that label dozens of times throughout the day. It might become like a little incantation, you know, because if every time you're eating, the calorie counts pop up several times or dozens of times even throughout the meal, it might just be over and over again, like diet culture oppression, diet culture oppression, diet culture oppression, you know, going through your head as you're eating. But that's okay, you know, because right now the first step to reducing the frequency of those thoughts is just labeling them as unwanted intrusions and creating some distance between yourself and them. So it's reminding yourself, you know, as I said earlier, reminding yourself that you are not your thoughts, reminding yourself that these thoughts are something that's come from outside of you and that you, yes, took in and internalized, but that you don't need to anymore and that in fact they're harming you and so you need to get them out. You know, you need to put them back outside at diet culture's doorstep where they belong and tune back into your own peaceful relationship with your body that is your birthright. So that's the first step. And then eventually with lots of time and practice, and I'm talking, you know, months here, I'm not talking a matter of days, I'm talking like months of consistently trying to practice this. And of course, you're not going to remember to do it every time. And that's okay, too. But just make it a practice to try to try to notice those thoughts and try to label those thoughts. And eventually labeling them as oppressive will become more automatic. And then you get to go the next step of asking yourself, okay, this is an oppressive thought that I'm having. Do I even want to listen to it or do I want to be liberated? Do I want to count calories like diet culture is telling me to or do I want to heal my relationship with food? So once you've started labeling those thoughts that way, it allows you some space to think about what your values are and you can start making choices then based on your values more of the time until eventually you're living in line with your values much more consistently. So this all takes quite a while. So that's why I'm saying like it's not going to be a matter of days here. It's going to take months of this kind of practice to start kicking those thoughts out of your mind or just giving you a little bit of space to make a different choice and to say like, okay, this calorie count that I'm having in my head is oppressive. I don't want to oppress myself. I want to be liberated. I want to get back in touch with my intuitive relationship with food that I was born with that I deserve. And so what choice am I going to make now? What's, the, what's a different choice that I can make? Now, since you're still fairly early in your eating disorder recovery, and it sounds like you've slipped back into behaviors before when you've tried intuitive eating, I would also really recommend that you get the support of an intuitive eating counselor who's experienced with eating disorders so that they can help you work through the principles of intuitive eating in a systematic way and not feel like you have to do it all at once or not feel unsafe and like you're spiraling. You know, it's really helpful to have support in this process. So I do this in my group program, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, but when you're in early recovery from an eating disorder, it's also really important to have someone you're working with individually if you can swing it either in person or over the phone or Skype so that they can answer your specific questions and give you more direct support and also help make sure that you're not slipping back into really disordered behaviors and letting that eating disorder voice get the best of you because it can get a hold of intuitive eating if you try to do intuitive eating too early in the recovery process. So to find an intuitive eating coach who can help support you in this way, go to intuitiveeating.org and check out their certified counselors directory at the top of the page. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well for this episode. So the bottom line is those disordered thoughts that you're still having aren't coming from you. They're coming from an external system of oppression that you've internalized, which is diet culture. And in order to liberate yourself from that, you have to recognize those thoughts as the oppressive things that they are. And eventually, with enough practice at that, you'll be able to choose in line with your values and you'll be able to choose a more self-caring relationship with food instead. 
So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode of the podcast, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to have me answer all of your questions so you can learn to eat intuitively and reclaim your life from diet culture, come join my intuitive eating online course and community. You can learn more and sign up for that at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn. The right hire can make such a huge impact on your business or practice, and that's why it's so important to find the right person. But where do you find them? Instead of posting on job boards, find the person who will help you grow your business with LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities, and 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on who they really are, you know, their skills, their interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. This way, your job gets seen by more of the right people. And I'll share that hiring the right people to help me with my business and podcast has been such an incredible gift. I can't imagine where we'd be right now if I hadn't found my podcast editor, Mike, who's been making me sound amazing for years now, and my wonderful associate, Vinci, and assistant, Julianne, and transcriptionist, Megan, because honestly, it takes a village to put out this podcast and all the other content I create every week. So find your own dream team with LinkedIn. Go to linkedin.com slash and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H to get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash foodpsych. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is also brought to you by Tomboy X, whom I'm so psyched to have as a sponsor because size and gender inclusiveness are really central to their whole brand. They're revolutionizing the underwear game by making underwear to fit you and how you see yourself. Tomboy X has everything from bikinis, briefs, boxer briefs, trunks, and boy shorts to soft bras and racerback bras, which are hands down the most comfortable bras I've ever worn. I'm actually wearing one right now and it's amazing. And they come in everyday basic colors and fun seasonal prints like wildflowers and poke dots that are actually little cat heads and octopus and all kinds of fun stuff. Regardless of where you fall in the size or gender spectrum, Tomboy X offers amazing underwear that anybody can feel comfortable in. Now you can support the podcast and support their amazing mission at the same time. Just go to tomboyx.com slash foodpsych and check out their special bundles and pack pricing. Food Psych listeners will also get an extra 15% off with the code FOODPSYCH. Again, just use the code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for an extra 15% off. Ditch whatever you're wearing for a pair of Tomboy X underwear. Go to TomboyX.com slash FOODPSYCH. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Kimberly Dark. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Wow. I suppose like a lot of people, I had a relationship with food that was fraught from the beginning because I was a, you know, chubby kid. And so the, you know, the constant worry was that I was going to stay fat. I don't know. I feel like this happens with, <laughs> with babies. If you're a girl, it's a bad thing to be chubby. And if you're a boy, it's okay. But so, you know, I think there was uh, about messages about restriction from the beginning from my family and also that created a situation where, you know, f- pretty early on, I mean, early as three or four, I was aware of like wanting to put food aside because maybe I wouldn't get any later or also eating before the family would get up in the morning. You know, like I could reach the cereal in the cupboard when I was three or four years old. 
Um, so that, those were the beginnings <laughs> of my relationship with food. I know that's going really far back. And then, of course, later, uh, the same thing uh, was true, but with a relationship to friends as well, you know, being in elementary school and being the, you know, the fattest kid in my friend group. And other kids were always trying to figure out, oh, well, what's different about you, even though I wasn't actually eating anything different than anyone else was eating. Right. There's always this sort of search for a reason why someone is fat. Yeah. I have a very distinct memory, actually, of um, of my friend, uh, one of my closest friends, suddenly decided one day, it's like, we're all eating school lunch. I mean, we're all literally eating the same things, you know? And so, so she decided that I must be fat because I actually look at my food when I eat it rather than having conversation like everyone else. And I thought, well, I'm having conversation with you right now. And and what are you like, like that just, that was the weirdest, right. <laughs> that was the weirdest theory. <laughs> it makes no sense. She was like grasping. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is so interesting. And yeah, yeah th- there is this sort of, I mean, because it's, it's diet culture, right? It's like we're all indoctrinated yeah. into diet culture from birth. And, you know, some people have a memory of intuitive eating as kids. And I think in a lot of cases, there's thin privilege tied up in that. But if you're fat from the beginning, or if someone thinks you're fat from the beginning, even if it's like your body becomes a problem without your consent, without your awareness, just somebody makes it a problem. Then suddenly right. like your eating is so policed from such a young age that you don't really get to experience that intuitive eating birthright that we all have. You know, you don't get to experience what you were born knowing how to do with food. It's very true. And I think uh, it came to me slowly from listening to other people's stories of feeling carefree around food as children that, oh my gosh, I never had that. <laughs> you know, that that literally just didn't, it didn't happen for me. I also find it interesting. I'm 50 and the, you know, the different ways that people relate to food as a child in different um, time periods. You know, Charlotte Cooper posted recently a old video um, from the 70s of the Fat Underground. There's this group of women in California, I believe, who put together, gosh, they were, you know, really basic videos where they were reading their personal experiences and thoughts with uh, food and size and weight stigma. But they were so radical. And it was really striking to me to look at this video uh, because, of course, those were the years when I was a child. And uh, I feel like in the work that I do, I'm, you know, I'm more often talking to younger people who are navigating these experiences with food, you know, in the 90s. And and how, you know, the, the similarities and differences, you know, but from being in the 70s was was like, was like really you know, your body is a problem to be fixed. And it is of dire importance that we do something now because you are utterly unlovable. And, you know, there is no way to be employable. There is no way to be, you know what I mean? There was such open understanding of how stigma would affect a child's life growing up. But that didn't stop anyone from applying the stigma. <laughs> that's the that's the strange thing about it. Right. It's so it's so problematic how this effort to 
ward off stigma actually creates and perpetuates stigma. And parents usually are doing the best they can and trying to protect you. And it, it sounds like maybe we can dig into that a little more, but it sounds like that's kind of where your family was coming from in sort of applying that pressure to you. But it sounds like you experienced it as really stigmatizing. And it was like it was it was reinforcing and creating that stigma. Yeah, absolutely. And it is it's a bit of a head fuck to think about like I understand that my parents love me and want something really good for me. But at the same time, there is a cruelty and a what's the word I'm looking for? You know, I, I actually wrote an essay about this that is free to look at online that is about, you know, like what it's like to be living, you know, a middle class existence in a place in a culture where food is completely available, right? But to be the only one in your household that is not supposed to eat. And that that's a, a very strange situation for a child to figure out, right? Like, here's this fabulous community thing that we do, right? We get together. It's like it's a big deal that we have dinner together or that we have a, a holiday meal. But yet, I'm praised if I don't participate fully or ridiculed if I participate too fully, <laughs> you know? So it's a, it's a strange thing. Cause I think, um, and obviously not every, uh, not every child goes through that. I, I think my, you know, cause sometimes, sometimes the whole family is doing a strange dance around food and deprivation. And, but, um, but, but for me, you know, I was an only child and my parents, at least at that moment were, you know, we're both slender. My father has the tendency to be larger, and so does, I, I mean, I learned much later, I, I most physically resemble his mother in our family, and uh, it was a revelation to me to look at photos of her as a young woman at some point, because I thought, oh my gosh, there's my body, and there's nothing wrong with her. There's, you know, there's just nothing right. wrong with her. She's just, uh, you know, she's just a big woman. She's just stocky and large and but as a child, it was just me that was supposed to starve. That's interesting because it's a lot of times, I think, in families where dieting is pushed on kids from a young age, it's also coming from the parents, like the parents are dieting, but it sounds like your parents weren't partaking. It was just all about you dieting, making you diet. That's right. I think in hindsight, my mother was always dieting, but it was not spoken of that way. It was just, that's the way women behaved, you know? So she never spoke of the fact that uh, a piece of dry toast and black coffee in the morning was intentional deprivation. She, it, that was just the way it was for women. So I, I think the, it was the lack of language and framing around her dieting that really just made me see, well, she eats what she wants and, you know, my father eats what he wants, but I'm not supposed to. <laughs> right, because you didn't see the sort of behind-the-scenes deprivation at play for her. Right, for her. And, you know, I mean, and she often would say, you know, you need to learn to just act normal. And, uh, you know, and normal, of course, meant thin. Right. God, that's so painful. Yeah, it's it yeah, of course, of course. It's also interesting though how gosh, those things are so normalized that I don't think it's like delayed release pain. Like it didn't occur to me 
of course, sometimes things were, you know, I, I remember having painful moments, like certainly the incident I described at school lunch when my friend decided I was looking at my food too much. I definitely wanted them to stop talking about that. So that was painful in the moment. But so much of the day to day was just normalized in such a way that it wasn't until later that I really was able to link certain feelings of anxiety around food, for instance, to those experiences as a child. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's such a good point that it's also normalized in our culture, like that behavior of your mom's of sort of low grade dieting and just like, quote unquote, watching it is just sort of like the legacy of diet culture. And it's passed on particularly from women and femmes to the next generation of women and femmes and increasingly people of other genders as well. But, you know, I think it's, it's sort of so wrapped up in patriarchy that it's very much this like matrilineal sort of thing that gets passed on. Yes. And yeah, and it's, it's really hard to acknowledge and so insidious the, the pain that it causes. And so it can manifest just as anxiety or thinking you're weird about food and thinking you're broken in some way rather than, oh, actually, this was a harm that was caused to me. Exactly. Exactly. So where did it go from there then when, you know, you said you were about in middle school when the painful experience with your friends happened. So was that kind of the start of more bullying for you around your weight and size or how did that play out? Do you know, I, I, in some ways, I suppose I was fortunate because bullying for me was not overt physical abuse. I I mean, and gosh, it sounds so, it's so horrible to say this, but it's like, I, I mean, I knew other fat kids in my school who were receiving physical abuse. And so two of them were boys and one was also gender nonconforming and he was receiving particular abuse. So in some weird way, I remember feeling lucky that I was simply considered unattractive, not that I was also abused. And I also was likable in other ways. You know, I've always been, gosh, I hope I still am. I've always been a rather vibrant person, right? And so I I think (laughs) I I was likable in other ways. And so, I mean, I had friends and I had, it's just that it was a sort of an unspoken thing, for instance, when boys and girls started liking each other, that I was not likable in that way. It was just sort of an unspoken thing that, of course, I couldn't expect to just have a crush on someone and have that, you know, expect that that affection would be returned. It's a passive bullying, I suppose, right? It's like a a pact that we've all made (laughs) that, that this is simply true. And so that's, that's what we work with. With regard to food itself, I would say that that same relationship continued, but I became more vehemently involved in it, right? Rather than it just being deprivation that my parents enacted on me, I took up the cause as well. That's how that evolved for me by the time I was, ooh, I'm going to say 10 or 11. You know, I guess it was would have been the the summer between sixth and seventh grade that I lost as much weight as I could through starving. Wow. And did anyone 
call that out as like a problematic behavior? Did your parents notice you weren't eating? Oh, they definitely called it out as a good thing. Even when I really got to the point where I was in deep trouble around age 12, for for whatever reason, for my body, I never became what people referred to as dangerously thin. I never became emaciated, which, you know, later, of course, I came to see what an amazing body I have that it refused to let me go. What an amazing thing that was that I, you know, that I could literally go with, you know, with nothing and, and the body did not betray me. It did not, you know, (laughs) didn't say, okay, we're going to get sick and die now. It didn't do it. So now I see that kind of as a, an amazing, you know, a miracle of sorts. But, but no, at the time, I remember being 12 and saying to people, you know, like I was really in such trouble that people would say, oh my gosh, you've lost weight. What are you doing? And I would literally just deadpan say back to them, that's because I haven't eaten and I'm starving. Like I would just literally say that sort of thing because, you know, it's like I was getting angry. It had become astonishing to me that really no one cared. Right. And that they were praising you actually. And usually what would happen would would be the speaker would just sort of look at me like I said something really weird and kind of chuckle nervously and say, oh, well, you look great. And then, you know, it, you know, it would just go on. But so, you know, I mean, I did that regularly and no one ever, I, I mean, because I, you know, yeah, I just never became small. And so I, it was unfathomable that that what I was saying could be true. And I think that's so common, actually. I think, you know, I talk about this on the podcast all the time that like the typical quote unquote picture of an eating disorder is total bullshit. That's not what the vast majority of eating disorders look like. That's just one tiny segment of the population that happens to their body goes to that place of emaciation, whereas most people's bodies are actually designed to hold on to whatever weight they can, right? It's like, that's why we're here. You know, evolutionarily, we would not be here if our bodies weren't programmed to fight by hook or by crook, you know, tooth or nail to, to keep our weight on. This is, you know, I often talk about like being famine proof in a time of abundance. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a wonderful thing, but you know, like, I, I think you're absolutely right. We forget that humans are meant to withstand periods of famine. Yes. Famine and migration. I mean, that's, that's what we come from. And so it's, it's not that odd. And yeah. And I think to, you know, for people who maybe started out in a larger body where diet culture condemns that and then you know like you got the praise for losing weight by any means necessary even if the means were horrifying and you know literal starvation and in someone who had started out in a smaller body who did get to that point of emaciation it might have been horrifying to people to hear about those behaviors and to see the supposed evidence on the person's body but the same exact behaviors when you're not seeing someone who's emaciated standing in front of you. It's like, well, keep it up. What Do what you got to do. <laughs> right. It's right. mind-boggling. Yeah, it really is. But that's what happened for me. And to be honest, so the, the, the gateway to that where the came about in the late 70s. And so that was the gateway. Because, you know, there's the, those things. I mean, I think those diets still are a gateway for a lot of people. 
Totally. And they're still around in various forms, too. You know, they might be called something different. They might now go under the guise of wellness because that's what every diet is calling itself these days. It's like, it's a lifestyle. It's wellness. It's not a diet. But it's still the exact same thing. It's just packaged in a different way. Yeah, exactly. And the difference between being doctor supervised versus non-doctor supervised is also very deceptive because that that diet was the first available over the counter, right? <laughs> kind of non-doctor supervised thing, but 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 I had also done a doctor supervised one, you know, where the doctor was also in favor of my starvation. So, you know, that that didn't matter. But I think some feel safer because there's a doctor involved when that's just not the case. Right. It's uh, doctors really are willing to co-sign a lot of weight stigma and mm-hmm. diet culture crap that is not actually health promoting. Right. Yeah. Oh, so that's you. You got into that really young, it sounds like. Yeah. Between sixth and seventh grade. And the, the subsequent the subsequent slide into, well, there were a lot of things going on then. I mean, there was the, the food issues, but then, you know, I also started taking pills more often. Uh, I'm also an incest survivor, and a lot of that was coming to a head then. But, you know, I feel like the road to recovery, so to speak, was also manifold. It had, you know, many parts and... Uh, getting away from my family of origin was a was a big thing. And also, for the first time, like really feeling mutual attraction with someone. I'm queer, and so like I was 14 the first time I was involved with someone of the same gender. and and that was like a, a revelation. And I just started eating again very naturally because it was like, oh, here, I liked this person and I didn't want to seem weird, right? She'd say, oh, should we go grab some pizza? And I'd be like, yeah, pizza's great. You know, like totally nonchalant as though, <laughs> as though I ate food every day. <laughs> you know, so it just yeah. became a very natural thing. I've actually, I, I had an eating disorder of my own and was being super restrictive when I got into a relationship with a guy who was a foodie, like a food writer. Uh-huh. And, you know, and I was the same thing. I was just like, oh, yeah, totally cool. Let's go on a food adventure. Like, I'll, yeah. you know, <laughs> I'm super cool about food. It's great. Yeah, exactly. like, meanwhile, <laughs> great. panicking in my mind, but like nothing right. showed on the surface. And it was, it was nice sort of ad hoc exposure therapy, actually, you know, kind of forced me back into the the regular swing of things with eating. Well, and that's how I felt too, because I don't mean to imply that suddenly um, all of those things were fixed. I, you know, that certainly wasn't the case. It was, you know, another few years before I, now I'm trying to think 14 to, I, I would say 20, I was 25 when I made a firm commitment to myself not to diet again. And I haven't, so that was that was a good 10 years of up and down. Yeah, did it ever get sort of as disordered again? Did it just kind of go in different directions or what was it like from there? Yeah, it didn't get as bad as that. I mean, you know, really the the periods of no, I I never starved myself to the extent that I did in those early adolescent years again. In fact, I often used to feel like no matter what is happening with my urges or my weight, you know, like if I had an urge, for instance, to overeat, 
I would say in my mind, you know, you're going to get through this because no matter, no matter what you do in this direction, it's not ever going to, you're not ever going to be as unhealthy as you were. So it, it did just feel like, uh, you know, the, the period of time that I was binging felt like, okay, okay, it's a little overcorrection, but, <laughs> but I can, I, I'm going to get through this. This is going to be okay. Like, I didn't ever feel like I was going to die as I did with the starvation, you know. I mean, I really could only stay awake a certain number of hours a day. Like, I, you know, I was, I was in deep trouble. I think that's really lucky and something that I don't see that often because now I work with people who are recovering from disordered eating too and have worked with really clinically significant eating disorder or, you know, clinically diagnosed eating disorders as well. They're all significant, but, you know, there's yeah. sort of the people who are in the really deep trouble versus the people who are maybe a little bit further away from the really deep trouble when they come to see me. Right. But I see a lot of people who are really afraid of the binges and who have the diet culture beliefs so entrenched in their mind and really the eating disorder beliefs that it's not okay, that it's not safe to potentially gain weight, that the binges become almost scarier in their mind or worse, quote unquote, behaviors than the restriction. But actually, it is very much the body's tendency and sort of necessity really to correct from periods of starvation with periods of binging. And it sounds like you had sort of an intuition that that's what was happening. You were, you were sort of tapped into that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't hear as many of these stories as you do, of course, but my experience has, has borne that out as well. And I think that it was very conscious that I would say those things to myself because the voice of you are virtuous if you deprive is so powerful and so, you know, this was a, a very conscious counter-narrative in my head to say, look, under no circumstances are you about to die if you eat these extra donuts. That's not what's going to happen. But you know what the other place is. Like, the other place is really, truly dangerous. This is, gosh, hope we're, hopefully we're going to get through it, but this is not going to kill me. How did you sort of come upon that narrative? Were you reading about stuff at the time? Did you have therapy or were you just, did you just discover this on your own? Yeah, I could feel it. And that's why I'm saying that, you know, this sort of road to recovery was multifaceted because it was related to being able to find my erotic power, my sexual turn on. And so there was this feeling, you know, the first time that I had, but because I had been sexually abused, I knew what it was like to have sex happening without wanting it, right? Like I knew what that felt like. And so when I felt the opposite thing, which was, I want this with every fiber of my being, it was radical, right? And I think for, because those things were happening at the same time, the same was true for fo with food for me. And so the feeling of starving as much as I could feel virtuous about it was quite opposite to the feeling of being satiated. You know, that felt like the erotic urge satisfied. It felt like warm and like I'm not shaky anymore, right? It felt solid. And so somehow I connected those extremes, the extremes of non-consensual and consensual sex and the extremes of starvation versus being 
satiated. I'm saying it in that way specifically because that's obviously the the place before binging, but for some reason the binge just seemed like okay, this is some overcompensation right here. But <laughs> right, <laughs> like I, it went a little I past. Like I, if I feel like I need to, it's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Because that feeling of satiation that you, like you, maybe you went a little bit past that, but you, it, you felt it and you sort of knew that that was what you were after. Well, yeah, it was, it was almost like, uh, I, I mean, I guess I needed to learn how to find it, uh, right. you know, really, because it was just like, oh, wait, wait, I can keep on eating until I don't feel well. Oh, wait, that could happen too. <laughs> <laughs> right. It comes full circle. It's like bad to good exactly. to bad again. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And that, that makes total sense too. If you were restricted from such a young age, you know, like from yeah. before you were even really conscious, you probably didn't have the ability to get to that point of satiation as a, you didn't have permission to have it anyway. No, no. My early childhood memories with food were always the extremes because, you know, either I was trying to sneak food because there might not be enough and eating too much or, you know, they really were the two extremes that I, I, I think you're right. It, it took a little while to learn that there was a place in between and it felt pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's true for most people who experience that restrict binge cycle, whether it's from, you know, super young age, like you had, or from other experiences too, like food insecurity and poverty and the, that kind of deprivation, yeah. or even like the later deprivate, you know, it's like you could be an intuitive eater. I mean, this was my experience, I think, largely because of a lot of kinds of privilege, I was allowed to be an intuitive eater pretty much my whole childhood. And it wasn't right. until I got into my, into college that I started, you know, dabbling and dieting and then fell down this extremely disordered rabbit hole. But, you know, I sort of had the ability to come back to intuitive eating and just knew what it felt like. But still for the 10 years or so that I struggled with disordered eating and pretty extreme dieting, I didn't have that sort of middle point I lost it the restrict binge cycle was so powerful that I I lost the ability to just sort of find that middle ground and it wasn't until the really you know I talk a lot about the restriction pendulum like that when you restrict it's kind of like pulling back the pendulum the only way for it to go from there is going to be this swing past the center to the other side it's like this equal and opposite reaction you're not going to find yeah. you know you're not going to go from restriction to just you know lightly settling in the middle it's going to be this kind of swing back and forth until finally it does settle if you stop pulling it you know if you stop pulling right. over to the side of restriction but if you keep doing that you're going to keep just swinging back and forth violently right right so that's that's interesting though it sounds like you sort of naturally started to find or just allowed yourself to have those swings and allowed yourself to feel like okay, eventually I will settle in the middle. Yeah. And, you know, it's not as if the, this is how I think of this often, that when, when, we, when we take on cultural norms and standards that are unhealthy, because I think this is true for more than just food, but when we take on these cultural norms and standards that are unhealthy, they may never go away, right? The awareness of them may never go away. But what we can do is add additional meanings and additional experiences that sort of, they're kind of like water rushing over the top of the granite of those cultural norms and standards. And 
yeah, over time, even granite breaks down, you know, it begins to get cracks, it begins to, you know, so I still have, I mean, you know, at 50, and, you know, really having not dieted for the last 25 years, I still have moments where a twinge of hunger brings up the thought that, oh, there's something, there's something virtuous happening. And the difference is that now there is also a quite strong voice in there in my psyche that says, isn't that fascinating? (laughs) That can still, isn't that fascinating? And how wonderful that you don't live there anymore. Of course, you're still aware of that. That's what the whole culture is, is prompting us to believe that women are virtuous if they deprive themselves of food and sex. That's my belief that, you know, we kind of put those things in the same category. And actually, advertising conflates those two with food sales as well. You know, the idea that, you know, even the language, right? Like you're naughty or you're indulging or, you know, you're sinful. It's sinful. Like they make those chocolate and ice cream commercials look like sex, right? So there is a whole cultural narrative about this that, of course, it didn't disappear. Of course, it didn't. Right. But there's new narratives now as well. And I don't have a feeling anymore like hunger means I'm supposed to have more hunger because it's a virtuous thing. I feel like, oh, hunger means I should stop and get something to eat. (laughs) (laughs) It's as simple as that. It's not, you know, uh, so it doesn't have the same meaning, right? Even though Mm -hmm. the thought is still there. Right. That sort of culturally imposed thought is going to bubble up, but there's also this kind of more rooted, natural connection of, of, yeah, hunger means I need to eat. Exactly. But I I do, I think, I think it's reasonable to think that every single cultural message, especially since we're still being barraged by them, is going to suddenly transform, but we certainly can develop the sovereignty to behave differently around those and go like, oh, wow, God, that's amazing that I used to believe that thought. And I feel so lucky that I don't anymore. I feel like that sort of form of dialogue comes up for me at least daily, if not more often. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like there's always these little moments of catching diet culture. Because I think once you spot it, it's like this pattern game. It's like you just see it everywhere. Yeah. You know, so I think that that sort of response just feels so common for me now. It's like, oh, God, thank God I'm not doing that anymore. Oh, look at that. You know, and it's it's sort of this reinforces like gratitude for for not doing that helps reinforce my self-care really yeah that's right how did you get to that place then because I mean your career is so interesting too and I want to sort of dig into that and how you got into sociology and then the performance aspect as well like where did that all start to come in and how did learning about sociological issues around body size and diet culture and all that inform your own relationship with food and your body well first of all I think I think that it is a really powerful consciousness raiser. It's a, you know, it it is a way to help transition our personal behaviors and beliefs to start to learn about social context. You know, it's, it's an amazing catalyst. And I think, I think for, you know, for those of us who teach critical sociology or women's studies, you know, and you constantly see people go, oh my gosh, I didn't know that I wasn't the only one who experiences this thing. And 
I mean, I, I can understand why some people view women's studies as activist curriculum, but it isn't that it isn't it isn't that the, we're in there teaching people that they should, you know, go out and smash the patriarchy, although that's not a bad idea. I'm teaching people to see the patterns of what cultural programming does and to start to look critically at the media that we consume. And, and so it's just an automatic step, right? And it was for me too in my life. I remember taking sociology courses in college and I didn't even know what that was. But as soon as I started taking the classes, it was like, oh, I understand my life better. Isn't that amazing? And so there was definitely a, you know, a link there. The The performance work is, it's an interesting thing because people ask all the time, like, well, how did you start doing this? Or, you know, I want your job. How do I do that? And I go, oh my God, you couldn't plan it if you tried. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so multifaceted. There's like a yeah, lot, lot there. The strangest trajectory. So, you know, I had been, I had been a writer, a creative person, and then there was the sociology and they were, you know, parallel tracks. They're not ever going to meet. But then suddenly they did because the more I started infusing the personal narratives that I was writing with cultural understanding. And then when I started performing, you know, and look, performing is a funny word. I do performances now, but, you know, back in the early 90s, I, you know, I had no theater training. I wasn't, that wasn't my thing, right? But I was co-facilitating a creative writing group with a guy who, it was actually at the Gay and Lesbian Community Center in San Diego, and he wanted to start holding quarterly readings, events. And I said, oh, no, that sounds like a lot of work. I think we should just do our you know, <laughs> just do our little thing here. And he said, no, no, I'll do all the administrative part and get, you know, we'll invite a writer to come and then our students will showcase their work. And all you have to do is be the MC." And I thought, oh, okay, that's easy enough. I'll do that. And then I started to realize okay, I should prepare five minutes of something to read. And then I started to slowly realize, wait a minute, in the moment that I stand up and read, I'm not a writer anymore, I'm a performer, right? So how do I get responsible to that role instead of the other role? And that's how I learned about doing performance little by little. But the big thing that was fascinating to me, I suppose, from a sociological perspective also, was the immediate audience response, the way that you could have immediate feedback on how people were making connections about certain content. So I do still, I do still write personal storytelling, but you know, the way I talk about that as, a, as an autoethnographer is that every story is about me, but I'm not the subject. The subject is always some theme in the culture, right? So that word autoethnography is, you know, it's a qualitative research term to mean you're writing about the self in order to understand the culture. So that became my particular gig was uh, to do that work. That is so cool. How did you arrive at that? Like, did you, when you started to specialize in sociology, when you did your advanced studies and stuff, was that something that was 
sort of like yeah. presented to you as an option no. or like, <laughs> no. right. It seems it like it wouldn't be. Not, it still is not presented to students as an option. <laughs> you know, I spend a lot of time on college campuses and I'm always trying to, if, if I am working with a sociology or, uh, well, really any social science department in particular, I am always at pains to explain to those students that, look, I live in the circus sideshow of sociology. <laughs> if you want a job under the big tent, then you're going to have to do this other kind of work because, you know, but if, if you're interested in the circus sideshow, because that's where, that's where the interesting stuff is going on, then that's fine. But understand that I never wanted a tenure track position at a university. And so it didn't concern me that this work is not eligible for that. But if that's what you want, make sure that that's what you're aiming for. Right. Yeah. Cause I do, it seems like academia is so like I've, ha I've reached out to researchers in various fields and asked them to come on the show and they're like, well, I'm on a tenure track and I just like started or, you know, I haven't gotten tenure yet. So I need to not speak out publicly until I'm uh -huh. sure that I have tenure and then let's talk, you know, like let's talk in five years kind of thing. And it's like, wow. Well, and also the ability of people in psychology and sociology and, you know, many of the social sciences, but particularly more the psychology fields, their, their ability to speak of their own experiences also is quite limited because of what the field requires. And obviously I'm a fan. I've kind of made my camp in the in the arena of, no, no, personal storytelling is necessary in order to help people to actually connect back to social circumstances that need to be changed, right? Otherwise, we keep reinscribing the same circumstances that we speak out against. Um, so, so I'm, you know, I'm obviously in that camp, but I do think that there's a lot in academia that we need to dismantle about respectability, and what it means to be professional and respectable. I have a book coming out in October actually called The Daddies. And it is, it's a novel, but it's also, I, I prefer actually the term biomythography that Audre Lorde used for some of her work. The idea that people, I was trying to explain this to someone and I said, well, it's a novel. And she said, oh, I thought it was a memoir. And I said, well, you're only confused because the main character's name is Kimberly Dark. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's why you're confused. <laughs> but, but no, it's still, it's still like magical realism kind of, you know, it's a, it's a love story, but it includes, you know, there's a lot of erotic content in that book. It's chronicling kind of uh, our cultural relationship with daddy. Daddy is father. Daddy is president daddy is god daddy is lover that sounds fascinating yeah but i'm you know this is also like i'm very aware it, it's coming out on an academic press but you know i've gone through all the back and forth with them to make sure it's at an accessible price we're also trying to market to a general audience but i'm very aware that this is the kind of book that even though it's an academic press would not be publishable if i had a tenure track job you know, because you're not supposed to, we don't talk about sex very much in the social sciences, even though obviously that is an extension of the social life. Yeah, it's fascinating. Why is that? Why don't we talk about it? Well, I feel like I'm, when this book comes out, I'm getting ready to give that lecture quite often. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, it's a big question. It's like, what? It is, but it's a Why? good question. And uh, yeah. so I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm curious too about, you know, just sort of to get into that a little bit around talking about sex and sociological issues and relationships with one's body, both in your own experience and in your experience of teaching this material, either through lectures and traditional academic settings or your performances and, and sort of more personal revelations. Like, what do you find is sort of the intersection of those things, sex and the body and how we talk about sex? Yeah. It occurs to me just in listening to the way you framed the question that you you just asked, the first issue is that we still are in a place in scholarly conversations where we are not acknowledging the body as a site of knowledge. We're just not we're just not there, you know, like we still we still are acting as though all knowledge emanates in the mind. And it obviously isn't so, right? Like you can very quickly in a conversation bring someone around to moments when they can remember having bodily knowledge. Just hunger itself, for instance, is a bodily knowledge, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Right. The fact that if you are watching a film and something strikes you as very sad or desperate, that your eyes will puff up and mucus rises and, you know, tears come out. There's no, that is a bodily knowledge, right? It's not like, you know, it's not like somebody just blew pepper in your face and it's a response to (laughs) (laughs) physical stimulus. So I think this is an immediate issue, right? Is that when we think about what arouses us, suddenly that is in the realm of, oh, I shouldn't talk about that as though it's real knowledge, as though it carries real information, so I, you know, in writing the daddies, I, <laughs> I am very interested in how it's going to be received. In part because there are plenty of passages that should either arouse or disgust a reader, depending on how they're reading it. And I'm interested in what happens when we allow those feelings into the conversation that a reader is having with the book, alongside the thinking of, for instance, I've, you know, I've used some of Bell Hook's thinking quite a bit in that book, right? Some of her her writing about masculinity in particular and how all of us uphold certain ideas about masculinity that are harmful. I think it is possible to be thinking in a mental way about those things, but also to let those thoughts be informed by arousal or disgust or pain or despair. So that's that's what I'm going for in the book, at least. And I think that more of that would be useful just in our general social discourse to acknowledge that the body has knowledge that we are often not bringing into our conversations. Absolutely. And especially with the patriarchal sort of top-down and white supremacist too, right? Like top-down yes. intellectual above emotional, you know, this hierarchy of kind of what is considered the masculine over the feminine, right? Like that type of knowledge is what is sort of perpetuated in university settings and academia, but also in sort of mainstream intellectual culture, I think too, like even, you know, newspapers and, and blogs and, you know, sort of think pieces, right? They're, they're not, there's not a lot of discussion around 
messages from the body and the body's wisdom or like people's lived experiences, you know, and I see this a lot with writing on food and nutrition and the quote unquote obesity epidemic and stuff like that, right? It's like, it's, it's sort of imposing this intellectualized outside, it's making a lot of assumptions about what's going on in people's bodies, as opposed to talking to them about their experience of what's happening in their bodies, or even allowing a broader array of experiences to be even coming into like the scientific research. Like I recently realized that pretty much no nutrition science that's out there actually controls for disordered eating behaviors. They don't ask people, do you engage in restriction? Do you engage in binging? Do you, you know, they don't ask people about their relationship with food, but they're making these wild assumptions about people who consume X amount of sugar have Y health outcomes, you know, and people who are, yeah, you know, it's like, it's, it's this attempt to impose intellectual knowledge on something that, there's a lot of other knowledge that could be brought to bear to help us really understand what's going on for people in their relationship with food and their bodies. But that just is completely shut out of that sort of scientific discourse about food and nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true of people trying to recover from disordered eating as well. I see a lot of people who are very shut down about what their body's desires are. And of course, that's so natural growing up in this culture because we're taught to suppress those desires. We're taught to think of them as bad and to try to substitute something else. And so I think a lot of times when people really recover and sort of learn to open up to taking pleasure in food and to what they're, what they actually want to eat, that becomes, it sort of widens out into the rest of their life. You know, it becomes, yeah who do you want to have sex with or what do you want, you know, what do you enjoy doing with your time or what do you like yeah. all these different things, right? Sensual, you know, how do you like to be touched? How do you like to, do you like the kind of fabric that you're wearing or is it itchy? You know, yeah. like all of this stuff is sort of opens up when you can kind of dip into the body in one arena. And, and oftentimes I think that's through food. That's exactly it. And I, I agree with you that Discussing hunger and discussing food and discussing satiety is, these are things that that help us, well, not only help us to heal the the relationships that we have with food and eating, but but also I feel like we're we're just starting to scratch the surface with the the hashtag me too movement where people are talking about their experiences of abuse. But there's this additional thing that is starting to happen where women are just talking about how sex goes for them, right? And this this big revelation that people are having about, you know, how many women don't have orgasms and how often men think of the end of sex as their orgasm. And I mean, I'll mention this, it was a specific thing, but it really struck me um, it was a woman describing a date that she'd had, and this was an article, and I, I can't remember where it was, but uh, the, the date she had was with Aziz Ansari, who is an actor and creator of the show Master of None, a show I really like. Yeah, same. The story, though, was you know about this date and about the sex that they had, and... I, for me, the biggest thing, you know, and he does not come out well in this, no. right? Because he's, uh, he comes out as being very coercive. For me, the most interesting thing about this sort of tell-all article was I suspect that a lot of 
consensual sex might look like that between men and women that that if if not to that extreme something something that is occasionally coercive you know with certain acts or certain positions or certain timing and so you know people talked about this writer as though she had done something wrong in talking about all of the minutia of his inept <laughs> sex. Um, but did she really, you know, like, like really there's a lot to be revealed about. And, and, you know, and this is part of my aim in writing a book like the daddies is that it is not as though our sexual urges are unrelated to cultural circumstances. They're absolutely related, even though we think about sex as one of the most private things we do. Well, you know, a lot of women, the way they relate to food is also very private because we have the same messages about food as we do about sex, as I've always already mentioned, that that idea of sin and indulgence versus deprivation versus uh, naughtiness versus, you know, the whole the whole way that you know food is advertised with like angel wings and a little oh, halo over God. it yeah you know that the, these these kind of um, tropes that we use to talk about food that women eat are very similar to the way we talk about women's sexuality and and so i think there's just it's like yeah okay aziz ansari got skewered in that one but there is so much room for more of that oh yeah <laughs> So much room. I know. I feel like most women could write a story like that. You know, I, right. I read that right. and I thought like, yeah, he's a jerk, but also uh -huh. I went uh -huh. on, I went on dates with a lot of jerks like that, you know, like there, I've, I had been in situations like that. Exactly. I don't know anyone who hasn't really. And it's exactly oh, yeah. it's horrifying. Well, it's also, you know, going back to the sort of connection between food and sex, I think it's really interesting that like right now we're in this time when food is very performative. You know, there's this whole wellness culture on Instagram and people showing their green smoothies and their, yes. you know, their bowls of these pretty vegetables and stuff like that. And it's a similar way. I mean, I think throughout history, throughout diet culture's history, there have been different iterations of like the performative performing health in some way, quote unquote health, you know, whether it was like aerobics back in the 80s or now we have the smoothie bowls and who knows what the next iteration is going to be. But there's always some sort of way that women are sort of particularly pushed to perform like health and nutrition and eating in a certain way. And, That's right. you know, kind of like what you were saying with your mom and the dry toast. It's like that feels like a very 70s thing, maybe, you know? Yes. Yes. And in the same way, I think women are sort of pushed to perform sexuality in a particular way. And it, it also seems to shape shift as time goes on, you know, like wearing particular things that are considered sexy or having particular poses and photographs or styles of photography or whatever it is. Like there's this sort of performance of sexuality as well that is unrelated to actual sexual enjoyment and like actual sexuality in the same way that the performance of food and nutrition is unrelated to actual culinary pleasure. Right. I completely agree with you. I, you know, the, the idea of the food becomes, it, it, it supplants the actual experience of the food. 
in these these repeated performances <laughs> and and you know and what's funny is that they are literally now performances for an audience because of selfie culture and you know social media totally that is interesting going back to what you were saying about performance in your space right there's this whole new sort of way that people have to learn to perform and it's like a skill that they have to add on top of you know, everything else they're learning in middle school and high school or whatever it is. And yeah, yeah it's, I don't know. I feel like sometimes I'm that <laughs> old lady shaking her fist being like kids these days, but really <laughs> I do feel like sometimes it's, it's, you know, just horrifying to see what that is doing to people, you know, that kind of constant push to perform. I'm definitely that old lady. Sometimes I, I feel like, you know, my, the agent who handles my performance work is, you know, she's always trying to tell me, well, you need to make a little video about that idea and then send it to me. And I'm going, oh God. I, you know, like you, you have no idea like how much, how much it takes for me to think about doing that. And it's not that I disdain that in any way. It's just that it's not my generational expression, right? It's not the way that I, um, like I, I have to work through, I have to work through some stuff to <laughs> sit in front of the computer and make a little video. I'm trying to get better at it. I mean, I, there's a couple out there, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely see, especially, you know, all these people who are doing activism around weight stigma and fat stigma. It's really lovely, right? It's mm -hmm. lovely to see all of this, uh, you know, fat kini activism on the beach and, you know, all these things. I think, okay, you know, really, I, I probably would be that person if I were raised 10 years ago. But <laughs> so, so I'm gonna stay in my lane right now. <laughs> Just keep, keep writing things, and <laughs> I feel you. I am so like I'm 37. I just turned 37, so I'm the end of Gen X, the beginning of millennial, yeah. the millennials. But I'm like such an old millennial that I did not grow up with. You know, it's like yeah. I was not a digital native. I got we got the internet like when right. I was a senior in high school, you know. Right. So to me too, it, it does take so much to think about making a video. Like it's not an easy thing for me to say. Yeah. And there are some people my age who are fine with it, you know, who just like bang it out. But to me it, it is there's a lot of like unpacking and emotional labor that goes into even just being like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to put my face out there. Whereas with yeah. the podcast, I mean, there was actually a lot of emotional labor that went into starting up the podcast too. But now it just feels like such an easier thing to like plug in the mic and go. Whereas yeah. a video just feels like so much more invasive, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly the word. Well, and that's, I mean, kind of maybe the last question I want to ask you, because you know we have to wrap up. I'm curious about this idea of being like a public figure and someone who performs and in various arenas too, and being a proud fat woman, like a, a fat activist. Like how did you get to the place where allowing your body to show up in those spaces and performing in and with your body? Because I saw your your performance at ASDA too, at the ASDA conference. And it was like, you know, your body's very much an actor. It's very present in the performance. So how was that for you to get to the point where you felt confident and good enough in your body to be able to do that? So that happened over time. And I want to say it like that because always I have been aware of being if I'm on stage, I'm aware that I'm a fat person on stage. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, of course I'm aware of that. But if I am highlighting other 
things, other topics, other aspects of my identity even, then that felt okay. Even 25, 30 years ago, it felt okay. As my own thinking and analysis of the world grew more intersectional, I started dealing with the intersections of, you know, body size and appearance and gender or race or sexuality, for instance. And so that happened gradually. I am interested, though, in how there are always multiple narratives happening on stage. This is, this is one of the things that is most interesting to me about doing performance as a means of, I mean, look, because look, performance is entertainment. Of course it is. But it's also a means of education and expression and, you know, that there are always multiple narratives happening at once. So in a show where I'm talking about, for instance, gender and sexuality, and I never once mentioned being fat, I am still incidentally fat, right? Like there's visually that never goes away. And so part of what the audience is looking at, like, for instance, if I'm telling a story about some kind of foible with a lover and whatever, the audience is also having to deal with the fact that I am a fat woman talking about being sexual, even though I never mentioned fat, right? So at some point I started to realize, hmm, there are multiple narratives happening here. And I have started out by thinking that I was really only in charge of the one that I had written, the narrative I had written. But what if, what if there were interesting small things that I could do to actually steward more than one narrative at the same time? So, for instance, I, I do a lot of performances at colleges and universities. Here's another one I'm dealing with now is that I am definitely their parents' age. You know, so aging has now become another of my appearance identities that I am managing for the audience. Well, not for the audience, but with them, I suppose, right? Because certainly some of them are making things of my appearance that I have no idea what meaning they're making. So I guess, I guess I feel like it's become almost an interesting challenge to, you know, to anticipate a little bit, like what is the audience managing in this regard and what, what happens here? For instance, the show that you saw is called uh, Things I Learned from Fat People on the Plane. And gosh, we, as an aside, we tried very hard to figure out how to title that show because the word fat is so triggering to people. And I opened that show at a festival under a different name and had a really hard time getting people to come. Like literally the, to, we were two shows into a six show run and I started asking people just out in the ticket line for the, it was a, a festival, right? So people were buying tickets like for everything all in one line. And I started asking people, are you going to go see this show? Like I'd point to it in the, you know, in the program they go, uh, uh, and I go, why is that not interesting to you? And they'd be like, ah, it sounds like it's going to be, you know, like a, sounds like it's going to make me feel bad if somebody talking about being fat and it's no fun to be fat. And I go like, oh, right, right. So, so the title we finally arrived at, Things I Learned from Fat People on the Plane, it basically just off centers. They don't anymore think they're going to be listening to me rant. They think it's going to be something about, you know, fat people on the plane, right? And Maybe I'm one of those, but maybe those other fat people that they don't have to look at for an hour will have something funny to say. It's like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, now, now I just told you this aside and I've forgotten the thing that I was 
Oh, I know now. So that show has a moment in it where I say to the audience, you know, it's hot up here. I often get hot when I'm on stage. So I'm going to do something that's totally normal. I'm going to take off this cardigan. And I always wonder, though, if that's going to cause you to look at me differently or respect me differently. And so the thing is, I take off the cardigan and I have on a sleeveless dress and I have the you know, I suppose what people disparagingly call bingo arms, right? <laughs> the the fat, uh, you know, hangs from my upper arm. But this is literally, it's a stigma management issue that people with these arms, of course you think about this. You think about this. Do you, you know, do I wear something sleeveless if I want to be respectable? So the thing that happens that I've learned from this show is that Many people have told me that that was a significant moment for them in the show when they realized, oh my gosh, I would totally not want to look at you and like anything you had to say if that's what you looked like from the beginning. And I, I, I found it so interesting um, at that ASDA conference that it was almost as if a number of people were like, so what, you took off your cardigan. <laughs> and that's great. I mean, obviously, that's the response <laughs> response I want more of in the world. How it should be, yeah. (laughs) But, but, But that's an example of drawing attention to the visual narrative that the audience might not really know that they're engaging. That is so fascinating. I think, yeah, just sort of this idea of bringing out the unconscious judgments that people might be having and talking about them and using that to further the message of the show is so powerful. And I wondered actually in that show about that line, I was like, I don't know if she needs to say this at ASDA. <laughs> it's like, no, I was no. like, I think this is maybe part of the show. It was hard to, you know, cause sometimes oh, those little moments, right. You, it's like, it seems so natural. I was like, Oh, maybe this is just, you know, yeah. her taking off her cardigan, but no, it, it had, as I saw the rest of it, I was like, this has such meaning and it really, it makes a lot of sense why you would sort of take these moments to draw attention to your body in in particular ways and how you're showing up. Yeah. Yeah. It is very hard for people to, boy, one of the things that that show really underscores, I think, is that people do this mental gymnastics around that if they're going to like and respect me, they're going to dismiss my fatness right? But that show, like literally every five minutes is bringing their attention back to, this is how I look on the plane. Okay, this is how I look with this seatbelt. Okay, now this is what my arms look like. Okay, <laughs> now this is what, you know. And, uh, and sometimes there is real, real confusion from people afterwards of like, oh my God, like I, you would not let me stop seeing you this way. And I wanted to dismiss it. You know, like I wanted to uh, make that go away. And, and you know, and, and that's kind of the point for me is that like, oh, actually, because these are the, you know, the, the experience is very different. I'm not meaning to draw a, a corollary between the experience here, but, but the pattern is the same. We do the same with racism, for instance, right? That as long as this is why the issue of having a natural Afro is such a big freaking deal is because if you can change things about your appearance, for instance, if you're black, that, <laughs> that make white people more comfortable 
then it's possible that there's a smaller portion of racism given to you, right? And it makes it makes the white people given out the portion also feel better. It's that moment where I take off the cardigan where the audience thinks, actually, I was really much more comfortable when you left that on because now I have to look at your arms while you talk. And, you know, and I think we have to get to this place where visually the person sitting in front of you, regardless of race or gender or size, is fine. Like we have to get to that place and we're so far away from it right now. Um, but this is this is the interesting thing for me about performances. The the written narrative, the visual narrative, often very different. I love that. I think that's that's so important and powerful because you're right. Like you know, the ultimate goal that we need to be aiming for is to be able to allow people to show up in their wholeness and their embodied selves and be okay with them in every aspect. And if we're kind of forcing people to consciously or unconsciously erase parts of themselves and if we are also as viewers or conversationalists are erasing parts of people's being then what is that really accomplishing you know that's just kind of perpetuating the same system exactly exactly oh god I could talk to you forever this is so fascinating and I feel like we covered so much good ground here, but I don't want to keep you forever. So tell us where people can find you online and learn more about your work, including your upcoming book. Oh, thanks. KimberlyDark.com is the home for all things. And there is a tab there that says in print. And you can find information about the daddies coming out in October about love and errors, which is a book of poetry. I wrote, and also there is a whole list of clickable articles that are just free to read on a variety of themes related to the body and culture. There's also a tab on that website that says in person, and you'd see a list of my shows that are available for booking, and also information on two retreats that I offer in Hawaii. And one of them is called Yoga is for Everybody, and that is simply a feel-good yoga and we you know we do some writing about the stories we carry in the body but it is you know it's basically it's a rest that retreat i suppose it's also you know soul searching since we do a little talking about the stories in the body but it's for literally anyone can come to that i've I usually have people who are new to yoga along with people who teach yoga and are interesting interested in my approach to that and so the other retreat is a brand new one, and it is called Body Wise, and it is specifically for helping professionals, whether that is therapists or yoga teachers or massage folks or nutritionists. And it's also a rest. We're going to use nature and movement and discussion to look at how implicit bias affects the work we do with others. Because obviously all of us have a body <laughs> that we're working with others with. And I conceived of this retreat simply because I was having a discussion with someone about how, for instance, as a yoga teacher, I am always aware that students are seeing my body in a certain way, that, that, that my body is a player in the room in how I teach and how people receive that. Whereas a lot of folks are not aware that their body is a player in the room. The same is true for a slender person, for instance, who's teaching a yoga class. It's just a much more normative message. And so it's not conscious. 
And I think we're, we're all helped in how we work with each other by being more conscious of the meanings that our bodies carry. So that's what we're doing in that retreat is getting a little more conscious of our own bodies in how we work with others. My God, that sounds amazing. And I love Hawaii, so I might have to look into that. <laughs> that's in January. Come on oh, over. It's- perfect time to go to Hawaii too. Yeah, yeah. So that's what you can find at KimberlyDark.com. And, you know, of course, I'm on the, the, the social medias as well. You can find me there. Awesome. We'll link to all that in the show notes, too, so people can find you easily. And thank you so much. This is really wonderful conversation. I'm excited to share it with everybody. Oh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your work. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Kimberly Dark for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear this anti-diet message because so many people do by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And you can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and is always so appreciated. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 167. That's christyharrison.com slash 167. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course and community, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, become an intuitive eater, and leave diet culture behind once and for all, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych Programs team, our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, and our transcript assistant, Megan Saichi, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Like I said before, it takes a village. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sight. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. 